Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are continuing our series this morning in 1 John, so we have made it to chapter 5. We are in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5 this morning, and so if you'll be finding that, we'll read those verses in just a moment. You know, we're all wondering, when is life going to get back to normal? We're asking that question, and in fact, we're so unsure about it that we've actually come up with, I guess it's a new phrase, we talk now about the new normal. I mean, maybe we're not ever going to get back to normal, and something like what we're experiencing now is the new normal. I mean, is there ever going to be 100,000 people in Neyland Stadium again? Are there ever going to be large concerts that we can attend with tens of thousands of other people? What about church? You know, I'm getting people now asking about Sunday school. When is church going to get back to normal? I know we're having worship services now, but when are we going to start doing all of the other things that the church normally does? Well, I don't have all the answers to that. We were actually shooting for June 7th as a restart of Sunday school, but there are other things to consider. Things like, can we socially distance in our smaller Sunday school rooms when the number of people are there? Or are our teachers ready to come back? I mean, you can tell that we are gradually increasing our numbers, but there are still a lot of people who do not feel comfortable coming back. So can we effectively have Sunday school if that is still the case? And what about our children's ministry? Can we have children's classes and nursery? And if not, it's going to be very difficult to have Sunday school. And so we're still wrestling with all of those questions as to when are we going to get back to normal when it comes to the church? But many of us are ready to do that. I mean, we are, we are anxious to get back to what we used to consider our normal life. We're getting bored. You know, I go back and forth. I don't know about you, but some days I sort of like this. Some days I'm very content with what's going on. And the next day I am bored out of my mind and I go back and forth. And I imagine you have the same experience. Perhaps we've even felt a a lack of purpose. That is, some things have changed in our lives, like relationships are not what they used to be. In fact, one of our great members just a few minutes ago said the thing he misses the most during this pandemic is hugging me. He cannot wait to get back to the normal so he can hug me. I did not return that uh, desire. So relationships have been affected. Maybe our careers have been affected. We're not able to do the things that we used to do. And therefore, we sense this purposelessness and really not knowing what to do with ourselves. You know, that's not just a pandemic issue. There are people who basically live their lives like that, live their lives with a a lack of purpose And in one sense, I can understand that. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been created by God to have a relationship with Him, and without that relationship, you are by nature going to sense that, because you are not fulfilling what you were created to be and do. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
then that really should not be the case for you. Because God has given you purpose, and God has given you a reason to live, and not just to exist. You see, so many these days are thinking, I, I just need to endure, I just need to get through this. But that is not to be our outlook on life as a believer. We're to have joy, and we're to have a sense of purpose and abundance in life. Not just waiting for eternity, but while we pursue the goal of following Christ to have joy and delight in the midst of it. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is, is what I'm calling natural living. Now, this is for the believer. And when I say natural living, I'm using that phrase to speak about how we as believers, because of our new nature in Jesus Christ, should naturally live. That is the three things we're going to look at, and some of this we've looked at already, but the three things we're going to look at are not something that we need to try harder to achieve. These are three things that should flow out of our new nature. You see, when you were adopted into the family of God, you were given a new name. You're a believer. You're a Christian. But you don't just have a new name. You also have a new nature, and this new nature should demonstrate itself in the way we live our lives. So look with me at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we are uh, the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, number one, we see this natural living is that we are to live in love. Now, you say, I've heard that before. I mean, if you've been with us in John, you have indeed heard that before. He is beating the same old drum, he is striking the same note, and he is doing it over and over again. And in some sense, I know I shouldn't do this, but in some sense I want to apologize for the repetition, but I certainly don't need to apologize for the Word of God. And then when I look around at what's going on in our world, I'm reminded that the repetition is necessary. Because as, in spite of how many times we hear it, we still struggle with loving others. I mean, we find new things to be divided over all the time. The people who wear masks are mad at the people who don't. And the people who don't, don't understand the people who do. And we're mad at each other because we're not following the same rules during this time. I was in the mall over the weekend, just killing time. And a lady, while I was waiting on Tracy to get out of a store, a lady walked right past me. I mean, it wasn't six feet away. It wasn't one foot away. And I got mad about it. I didn't tell her that, but when Tracy came out of the store, I was like, you wouldn't believe what this lady did. She violated my six feet. And so we're mad at each other. And we need this reminder that we as believers are to live in love. But there's a new element to it this week. Again, we've heard this before, but the new element is this. The love that we are to express, both to God and to one another, has its basis in our salvation. 
That is, this is the natural way we are to live because we have been born again. We love God because he first loved us. That's what we saw last week. And we then in turn love one another, not because we're trying hard to do it, though we might have to, but because this is our new nature. A newborn baby grows physically, and newborn creatures in Christ are to love one another. Now, what does this new birth mean? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't remember much about my physical birth. In fact, I don't remember anything. You know, I'm amazed that some people remember uh, early childhood memories. I don't. Some of you can remember things that happened when you were three, four, or five. But nobody remembers their birth because you were not aware of it. You were too young. Now, we might remember our spiritual birth. That is, you might be able to recount to me where you were and what happened and what led up to it and even the day and time for some people. But even if you can remember your spiritual birth in those details, we are reminded according to the Scripture that we had nothing to do with it. It was God working in us that brought about our salvation. The Bible says we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. A dead man cannot do anything, and therefore God is the one who has made us alive. The Bible says that unless the Spirit draws us, we cannot come to faith in Christ. And I say all that to remind you that your salvation and mine is a supernatural work of God. Yes, we did respond in faith. Yes, we did believe, and I understand that side of it as well. But we must not forget that salvation is a work of God. And so the basis of our love for others is the fact that God has saved us. It is he who has recreated us. That is the origin of our living in love. The origin is God's recreation. He is our creator and he is also our sustainer. He created us physically. He recreated us spiritually. He has begotten us, is John's terminology. And once he has begotten us, he continues to sustain us. You see that word there in verse 1, born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Actually, the word father is not in the original. It's put there, and some translations even add child in there. It's put there to help us understand what John means. But literally, this verse says in the second part, all the ones loving the one who has begotten also loves the one begotten of him. So three times in this verse, there is a form of the word born or begotten. The one who is born of God loves the one who has begotten him, and therefore he loves the ones who are begotten as well. So it's difficult in the original. That's why it's smoothed out for us in the English. Now, I know we tend to think of ourselves as self-sufficient, that we can do things on our own and do not need the help of others. But that is not true in reality. The reality is we exist physically because God created us. We exist spiritually because God recreated us. And that is why the scriptures say you must be born again. I just have a belief that John, when he's writing this, is thinking back to uh, the incident that he records in his gospel in chapter 3. That's the incidents with Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. 
Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand that. He says, how can a man be born again? I mean, how can he go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. And that's why he says there, you must be born again. And that's what John is saying here as well. How do you and I live in love? It is the natural byproduct of being born again. Because God has created us and because God has recreated us, we then love him because he loves us and we love one another because that is our new nature. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean it's going to always come naturally. We talked about that last week, how it's difficult sometimes and we never measure up completely. But 1 Corinthians makes it very clear, 1 Corinthians 13, we call it the love chapter. Now remain these, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So I don't want to belabor it because we've talked about it quite a bit, but the new element this morning is that living in love flows out of our new relationship, our new creation, our new nature. Number two, we are to live in obedience. That's verses two and three. In fact, you can't live in love without also living in obedience because living in love is commanded and you can't have one without the other. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, using two different verbs, John speaks about obedience in both verses two and three. In verse two, he says, we know that we love others when we love God and do his commandments. That's actually the reverse of what he said elsewhere. So, so he says it both ways. Loving others is evidence of our salvation, and we love others because we are saved. And so both of those sides say the same thing, which are reminding us that these two things are inseparable. And then in verse 3, keeping his commands is actually equivalent to loving God. In other words, obedience is an expression of love. When we obey God, it is a sign of our love for God. And love for God is only real, that is, it's only a, a true love, when it is coupled with faithful obedience. And therefore, those who claim to love God and are not faithfully walking with Him, their claim to love God is simply false, and they are fooling themselves. Now, last week, we talked about blessed assurance. That is, we have a desire to be assured. And in fact, that's why John's writing this letter in part. It's a major part. He wants those who have remained faithful in the church to know that they are saved and have the assurance that they are not being led astray by false doctrine. Now, you understand that in that case, we were looking at ourselves. We were not pointing the finger at others and say, well, I wonder if they're saved or not. We were trying to look at ourselves and say, do I have the marks of true Christianity? But we are also aware that other people are looking at us. That is, people who know that we profess to be a Christian, people who know that we are faithful in going to church, are looking at our lives to see if these things make a difference. We instinctively know that. And in fact, when they look at our lives and they do not see a difference, what do they call us? They call us hypocrites. It's one of their favorite words, right? They say, well, your faith in Christ is not making a difference as far as I can see, and therefore, you are a hypocrite. Now, I bring that up to say, if, they, if, that is a, if an unbeliever knows 
that faith in Christ is supposed to make a difference in the way you live your life, and they are looking for evidence of that, then surely we ought to understand that as well. We ought to know that naturally speaking, that is when we have a new nature, it demonstrates itself as an expression of love in obedience. That is, it changes the way we live our lives. But not only is this an expression of love, secondly, he says, this is a blessing of nature. That is our new nature. Look at what he says there in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, his commandments are not burdensome. Now, we want to call a timeout, don't we? Time out a minute, John. I was with you until that. But now you're saying that the commands of God are not a burden? And I've just turned it around to make it positive and say it's a blessing of nature. We are to live in obedience because it's a blessing of our new nature. But what does John mean when he says it is not burdensome? I mean, frankly, we've talked about some heavy things in this letter. We've talked about living in love repeatedly. We've talked about walking in the light rather than in darkness. We have talked about how we are to strive to faithfully walk with Christ and follow him. We've talked about righteous living. I mean, even if we confine ourselves merely to the letter of 1 John, we tend to say to ourselves, I can't do it. And yet we also know that there are many, many other commands in both the Old and the New Testament. And when we think in those terms, it's easy to walk out of the church week after week and simply throw up our hands and say, I can't do it. The standard is simply too high. I can never measure up. So how then can John say it is not burdensome? The word burdensome is found five other times in the New Testament. Twice it is found in Matthew's gospel. In both of those occasions, it's in reference to the Pharisees and the scribes. You remember the religious leaders that they did have a, a lot of commands, and they were burdensome. In fact, in those two uses, it says that they, that is the Pharisees, laid heavy loads on the people and neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Those two phrases are the same word that we find here. And in fact, that might be the background in John's mind as he's thinking about how the Pharisees did, in fact, burden the people. In contrast to those thousands of man-made rules that the Pharisees imposed, the gospel, the true gospel was light and easy. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's letters are described as weighty and strong. But I found the most interesting references for this word in the book of Acts. In Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, he acknowledged that savage wolves would come in and attack the flock of God. He's using the same word there, savage. It's the same word. And then here it says uh, in the later occurrence in Acts that Paul was, accused, uh, was, was being accused of many serious charges. Again, the word serious is the same word. So this word burdensome means heavy or severe or weighty. And we could certainly say that carrying the cross of Jesus was indeed burdensome. It was a heavy load to bear. And yet John is saying that is not the case when it comes to the commands of God. Jesus himself said, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And yet, even though we might know that scripture and we see what John says here, 
We have a hard time believing that it's the case. So why is that? Why do we think, in spite of a clear statement here, why do we think that the commands of God are, in fact, burdensome? Well, let me give you a few reasons that I've come up with. One, I think, is because we fail so often. I mean, because we know that we cannot keep the commands of God, therefore we fail repeatedly, we are nowhere close to perfection, and therefore we sometimes simply conclude that it is just too hard. I mean, who hasn't said that or at least thought that when temptation comes? We just give in because it's too hard to overcome. Another reason might be the sheer number of the commands of God. Again, while we might not approach the thousands that were made up by the Pharisees, there are a lot of commands in the Bible. I mean, if we could just go to the Ten Commandments and got no, not go anywhere else, and yet we would understand that we can't perfectly keep them, especially if we go to Matthew and see how Jesus interprets the Ten Commandments. Uh, oh, you think you haven't uh, murdered anyone? Well, hating your brother and sister is the same thing. You think you haven't committed adultery? Well, lust is the same thing. And so Jesus throws an interpretation out there that helps us see that we can't even keep the Ten Commandments, much less all of the rest that we find in the Bible. A third reason we think the commands are burdensome is because we see them as being very strict. I mean, what young man hasn't thought to himself, how can I keep my eyes pure? How can I keep my thoughts clean? How can I be perfect as God is perfect? How can I be holy as God is holy? How can I be loving as God is loving? Well, one way is to drop the standard. We said we know we can't reach that standard, and so we drop the standard. And the standard is no longer to be holy as God is holy or perfect as God is perfect. The standard now is just to be better than most. So as long as I'm more holy than you, I'm okay. But that's not the standard. You and I are not the standard. The Bible, the Bible makes it clear that God is the standard. And therefore, when we look at it that way and we say we can't reach that, then we conclude that they are simply too strict. Or we might say to ourselves that these commands are burdensome because they hinder our personal freedom. They hinder our, our liberty, our, our choice. I mean, that's some of what we're debating these days, Right? I mean, Memorial Day weekend, we are reminded of those who have died for our freedom, and yet now we are restricted. We say we don't have the freedom that we used to have. The government's telling us what we can and cannot do. And so some are concluding that it's an overstep by the government. Others are applauding the government for uh, looking out for our safety, and there's another reason why we're arguing. You go to social media, and you'll see these arguments day after day about which one is right and which one is wrong. And so we say, I'm free. I ought to be able to do what I want. And many times that's directed at God. And that's, that's just a few of the reasons why in spite of what John says very clearly that the commands of God are not a burden, we tend to think they are. But why aren't they? I mean, how can we rightly understand what he's saying here and what Jesus says elsewhere in spite of what we've just talked about? Well, we need to understand that the commands are not a burden because we are not being asked to fulfill them in order to gain salvation. Now, if that were the case, they would be a huge burden. In fact, they would be a back-breaking burden. If these commands were commands given by God and God says to us, if you want to have a relationship with me, if you want to be saved, then you must fulfill these commands, then that is a burden to bear, one which none of us can handle. 
But we need to be reminded that we are not being asked to fulfill these commands in order to gain our salvation. The doctrine of grace teaches us that, though many of us have a hard time really believing that. It is by grace you are saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, John is talking about the new birth experience. And because we are born again, then fulfilling the commands are not a means to salvation. They are an expression of our new nature. Secondly, God's commands are not burdensome because he's given us the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this before. The Holy Spirit of God is within us and empowers us to obey. You see, we don't obey the commands out of our own strength. Again, this is not a try harder, get more determined if you have more willpower. No, this is an understanding that we cannot do it. And that is why God has given us a helper, an indwelling Holy Spirit to equip and empower and strengthen us so that we can obey the commands. You see, we need to stop, we need, we need to come to the place where we quit saying, I can't, and start saying, he can, because greater is he who is within us than anything else in the world. Therefore, it's not about what I can and cannot do, it is about God living in me. It's also the case that his commands are not burdensome because Christ is our burden bearer. It is he who bore our sins, it is he who took our iniquities on the cross, Again, I mentioned to you a moment ago that we don't keep these commands in order to be saved. And the reason for that is because Christ died to pay our sin debt. Therefore, for us to bear them is a denial of what he's already done. A final reason this is not burdensome, and this by no means is um, exhaustive. You could probably think of others. Is that, and this comes directly from the text here, we obey God as a direct result of our love relationship with him. So obedience in love is not burdensome. Now, again, let me make it perfectly clear that I'm not saying obeying God's commands are easy. I'm not saying that we don't have to try. We do. But I'm saying they are not a burden because they flow from a love relationship. Again, one of the conversations that we're having, at least if you follow the sports world, is when sports are going to come back. And specifically for many of us, When is college football going to come back? And you know, the SEC just opened up uh, in a few weeks. They've announced that they're going to open up uh, training. That is, athletes can come back to campus and have voluntary workouts. And so we're we're, we're thinking about those things and what they're going to look like. And so I want to use a football illustration for you. A, a, A college athlete does not find, generally speaking, I know there's exceptions, but generally speaking, he does not find all of the workouts, and all of the practices to be a burden. Why not? It's hard. It's grueling. Why isn't it a burden? Because he loves the sport. That is, he loves the game of football, and therefore all of those things that he must go through in order to play the game at such a high level, those things are not a burden to him. They are, in fact, in many ways a delight because he loves the game so much. Think of a mother. I mean, there are a lot of tasks that a mother has to do. We talked about some of those a few weeks ago on Mother's Day. But most mothers, again, I know there are exceptions, but most mothers would not say that motherhood is a burden. It's hard work. There's a lot to be done. And there are some grueling days. 
But most mothers would not say that motherhood is a burden because of love, because they love their children. And therefore, they do a lot of those mundane tasks out of love. And that is what John is saying here when it comes to our relationship with God. Fulfilling the commands of God are not a burden to us because it flows from love. Listen to just a few verses from the Psalms, and there are many more I could have selected. Psalm 40 and verse 8, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I desire. Why? Because it's in my heart. Because I have a love relationship, and therefore it's something I want to do. Psalm 119 and verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselor. And then Psalm 119 verse 47, I delight in your commandments, which I love. Did you hear that verse? I delight in your commandments, which I love. That is how John can say that the commands of God are not burdensome. So we are to live in love. That is who we are as new creatures in Christ. We are to live in obedience, which goes hand in hand with love. Again, because we are new creatures in Christ. And then thirdly, verses 4 and 5, we are to live in victory. Now, that's a new one for John. We haven't talked about this. And this might be the one that many of us find to be elusive. We know the Scriptures talk about victorious living. We know there are Christian speakers and even groups of, of people, denominations, that talk about the victorious Christian life. And yet we don't seem to be living it. And so we resign ourselves to the conclusion that victory in the Christian life is, is just for a few. It's just for the really serious saints, but not for the typical disciple. But the Bible knows no such categories. Every believer can live in victory. And in fact, that is the natural way to live. Again, we're talking about natural living and the natural way to live after coming to faith in Christ is to live in victory. And so you, you ask yourself, well, what is the nature of this victory? Exactly what kind of victory is John talking about here? And that's a good question to ask. What is the nature of victory? Well, it could be that John is talking about the victory of Christ over Satan, sin, and the world that he attained on the cross. In other words, because Jesus conquered those foes and did it on our behalf, then every Christian can now live in victory over those same foes. Or it may be that John is talking about victory over the heretics. Again, remember that a large part of this book is because there are those who have left the church and, and they have some false doctrine. And that false doctrine is being spewed on the ones who are still remaining in the church. But John is saying, no, you can have victory over those who are teaching false doctrine as long as you remain in the truth. Or maybe he's talking about a victory that comes with conversion since we're talking about natural living here. But I really think this goes back to chapter 2. If you got your Bibles open there, turn back to chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here's the threefold thing, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
I tend to think that although all of those other things I just mentioned are true and might have been in John's mind, I think he's going back to chapter 2 in those verses I've just read and saying you can have victory over the things of this world. That doesn't mean everything's going to go your way. It doesn't mean you're going to be successful and popular and, and rich. That's not what he's talking about. Victorious Christian living does not mean that you will never have an illness or that you won't die. He's talking about conquering the world and those desires of the world, again, because of our new nature. Three times here, we see the words, uh, we see the word twice, overcome, and the word victory once. You know what Greek word that comes from? Every one of you know the Greek word this comes from. It's the word Nike. Have you heard that one before? That's a, that, that's a Greek god, a Greek goddess of victory, strength, and speed. And that's where the company, Nike, gets their name. And that's the word here. You can have victory, you can have Nike because of your relationship with Christ. This is given to us by God, and yet it is to be grown in us. That is, we must work it out. So what is the key to victory? You say, how can I have that kind of victory? Well, John tells us very plainly, the key to victory is faith. Again, faith is a gift from God, but at the same time, it is to be grown by us. We have a responsibility to play here. So in closing, I want to give you four statements that will help you in developing your faith and mine so that we can have this victory that John is talking about. Number one, you need to feed your faith on a steady diet of God's Word. Now, you know, I say that a lot, maybe in different terms, but I say it a lot. We must major on the Word of God because we cannot know God apart from His Word and it is in God that we learn who, it is in God's word that we learn who he is. And that is how we feed and grow our faith. Faith is grown as we learn more about God. Just as we must eat physically to grow, and I don't have to remind you of that, we do that naturally. No one has to remind you that it's going to be lunchtime in a, in a little while. Your, your body's going to get hungry and you're going to say, well, it's time to eat. Likewise, we must feed ourselves, feed our faith on the Word of God. Secondly, we must exercise our faith through obedience to God's Word. Again, we exercise naturally. In fact, some of us are probably doing more of that during this time. You've noticed, I'm sure, just like in my neighborhood, you're seeing people out walking that you never saw out walking. And they're doing it more often because they're, they're, they, they want to do some exercise. They're trying to get out of the house. And so we must exercise our faith through obedience. We've already talked about obedience, so I won't belabor it, but that must be a part of our lives. Thirdly, we must rest our faith on the promises of God's Word. That is, just as our physical bodies need rest, so our spiritual lives need rest. By that, I do not mean inactivity. I mean we rest ourselves in what God has said, and that is His promises. And then finally, we persevere in our faith over time. This is not a, this is not a one-time thing. This is not, well, I heard your sermon. I want victory. I'm going to have it this afternoon. No, this takes place over time, and that is why Scripture is very clear about enduring, even enduring through difficulties and suffering and persecution. Those, th those things come and go. 
But we must continue to endure and to persevere. And over time, our faith is going to grow as a result. Faith is the key to victory. You know, sometimes I hear people say, you know, I I wish I had the faith of so-and-so. Well, are you willing to pay the price that they've paid? I mean, you know, the reason someone has greater faith than you is because in some measure, it may be different terms, but in some measure, they've done those things that I've just mentioned. They've grown their faith in the Word of God. They've exercised their faith through obedience. That is, they've put it into practice in life and seen that it works. They've rested upon the promises of God. And because they've done some or all of these things over the course of time, their faith is greater than yours because they've paid the price to grow it. And so for you and I just to say, I wish I had the faith of so-and-so, well, the question is, are we willing to pay the same price that they've paid? Wishing for victorious faith and working for it are two entirely different things. Again, this is natural living. I'm not asking you to do, as a believer, I'm not asking you to do anything that you shouldn't desire to do and that should not come naturally because of your relationship with Christ. This is simply the way a Christian lives. We might use the word normal. This is normal Christian living. It's not a new normal. It's the same normal as it was when John wrote it, and it still is today. We live in love, we live in obedience, and we live in victory all because Christ has not only begotten us physically, but he's recreated us with a new nature spiritually. That's what being born again means. Now let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the fact that so many of us have been born not only physically, but spiritually. You have worked in our hearts and lives and recreated us. And because we now have a new nature, we are new creatures. We live differently. Yes, it may be difficult. And yes, we have uh, mountains and valleys. We have good times and bad. We have days when we delight in following you and days when we don't so much. But I pray that you would help us to live in love, live in obedience, and live in victory. Not because we're trying harder or because we have more willpower than someone else. But because it is our nature that you've given us. And therefore we delight to live in love. We delight to live in obedience. And as a result, we live in victory. Because you've given us new passions, new desires. Not for the things of the world but for the things of God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.